0: i to talk to you today. What are discipleship fruits. Why? Why we do them at God first? Why we have been doing them since the start and why we are doing them now? And the how? The how to of a discipleship free. What I've also got a reading today, and that reading will come from Mark 2. Now, the book of Mark is Jesus' call to his would be disciples to come and follow him. That's the, that's the emphasis of the book. And you kind of see all that implies for would-be disciples, but you also see what Jesus can do for these disciples as well, and the people who choose to follow him. Um, the passage is Mark 2, 1 to 12, and it's where Jesus forgives and heals the paralyzed man. So I'm going to read that in a bit, and then afterwards I'm going to pray, so I'd ask you to join me as I pray. It's just here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say this to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now I love this passage because we see what Jesus is like, don't we? We see that he has knowledge of all things, that he has knowledge of the thoughts of our hearts, and he has knowledge of people's faith. We also see his authority to forgive sin, and his authority over sickness and listen. since he healed the paralysed man. But we also see a great picture of some faith-filled friends who stopped at nothing to bring this man to Jesus, as they knew that Jesus was his hope and his only hope. And I'll be referring back to this story today, but please um, join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for Jesus, Lord. We we thank you that he was the one who died and rose again to forgive our sins, Lord God. And thank you that we can be raised with him, Lord God. And and as it was sung about today and spoken about today, that yes, there's power in your name, Lord Jesus, Lord. There's power in your name, Lord. And as we talk today, Lord, give this... uh, uh, inspire us, convict us, Lord God, and give us an image of how we can be those faithful, faith-filled friends who take our friends to Jesus to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We pray that in your blessed name. Amen. 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 Now, um, we're going to talk about what are discipleship three. So I think it will come up here. What are discipleship three? So they are where two, three, or four people of the same gender, meeting regularly for gospel centered character conversation, spiritual growth, prayer, Bible reading, sharing life together, and to stir one another to be des- devoted disciples of Jesus. And you will notice that I've highlighted a few key things in there. There's lots of things I could highlight in there, all of it maybe, but there's a few key things in there. So, first of all, regularly. So, um, this is to meet in person regularly. And we're probably say, you know, fortnightly is a good time, anything less than that, and you miss out on what these discipleship fees can do, and you need that time to build the trust and the relationship needed. We'll talk about a bit more about frequency later. Another one is to stir one another on. So this is a mutual thing. This is not a top-down where you have someone who's maybe older and more mature discipling the younger ones. It's a, it's a one another really. It's a one-anothering. So we're coming to be encouraged, but also to encourage others. And then the other one is devoted disciples of Jesus. So whilst we'll be doing it in the context of friendship and deep friendship, it's more than just being better friends with each other. You've got to keep the focus, and the focus is to be a devoted disciple of Jesus and helping one another in it. So that's a short one on the what, and you'll understand a bit more about the what as I continue talking, but why? Why do we run discipleship freeze why are we relaunching these now as a church I mean we've just got our groups up and running why are we doing these discipleship freeze? and you might look at the definition I just put up and think well actually that's isn't that just a smaller version of our God first communities why don't we do these God first communities more often why are we only doing God first communities every other week uh, I mean I had my God first community this week and it was great it was really good. There was uh, 12 of us sat around the table eating, 12, 13 of us, and it was great to catch up. And what we had is we had uh, Graham Shaw tell his story, and that was really encouraging because we saw Jesus. We saw what Jesus had done for him, how Jesus had come into his life and taken him from quite a dark place and brought him, forgiven him, and put him on a good ground. Okay, we saw that, and then we went around and we shared something that we were thankful for. And we got to see what God was doing in different people's lives, and we got to practice gratitude together, so that was fantastic. But what we also did is we also went around and said one thing to pray for. And when we were going around saying one thing we prayed for, every so often it was just like, well, actually, I'd like to ask a few more questions there. I'd like to get a little bit deeper in there. But first of all, we did not have the time. There were 13 of us around the table. We simply didn't have the time, and it wasn't the right context to do it in. It wasn't the right context, so we need to go deeper, and it wasn't the right context. Um, but what was evident is many of us were aware of some of the things which are holding us back in our spiritual lives in our subject, We were very aware. In the 1970s, a revival historian named Richard Lovelace, he coined the term the sanctification gap and he used it to, to describe the gap between the Christian lives that we could be living, the Christian lives that we want to live and the Christian lives that we are actually living. And I know the verse where Jesus says, you know, I have come that you may have life and have it in its fullness. And I know that, and I can point to areas in my life where, yes, I am living that fullness of life that Jesus promises, but then there's the other side. And then there's the other side where I'm just, you know, I'm just grumpy, I'm short with people, I, I push people away, uh, where I have the same old narratives, the same old conversation playing around in my mind, you know, the anger at past hurts, the frustrations with the present and people in the present and the anxieties over the future. And maybe sort of some of the habits which I thought I kicked long ago and they just sort of come creeping in. Maybe you, maybe you get this. Maybe you know this yourself. Um, maybe you have similar issues in your life or maybe you're aware of some other issues in your life. One commentator, when talking about the sanctification gap, he says that this gives rise to some problems. And some of these problems could be the first one of pretense. Sometimes we can feel that we have to act as if everything's fine. Because after all, we are Christians, yeah, and we should be better off than when we, before we were Christians, or we should be better off than our unbelieving friends and family around us. We feel the pretense; we feel like we have to pretend that we're all okay. And sometimes we can feel, and we shouldn't feel this, but sometimes we can feel that it's not okay to not be okay church in the gospel community we can feel that and you know especially if you've been a Christian a while you can feel I should not be struggling with these things still it can lead to despair and frustration because of our inability to change it's been going on a long time maybe we've put ourselves into some programs we've done an online course we've gone to some other programs but it hasn't quite you know we come out at the end of it and it hasn't quite addressed the complexities of our situation We've put other things in place and we've done some moral formation, maybe diet, exercise, good habits, all good things. But at the end of the day, that has been powerless to produce the change, the discipleship change that we need. And maybe ministry activism. So this is simply, you know, doing lots of stuff for Jesus. And actually this stuff, our busyness for Jesus has actually prevented us from knowing Jesus better. And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you maybe have experienced this to a greater or lesser degree. And it can lead to one of two things. So the first thing it can lead to is that we simply settle. We simply become complacent and we simply settle with some of these things going on in our life, even though we know it could be different. Now, 18 months ago, I, um, I went cycling and I had uh, an accident and I came off and I broke couple of bones. One of those bones was a scaphoid, which is the a small bone in your wrist. Now, this takes three months to heal. So, I had a uh, Rava Fetchin cast on my um, arm for about three months, and it was a nightmare to begin with. So, uh, I, when I showered, I had to shower with my arm up here somewhere. Um, Excuse- Yeah, I won't won't talk about that too much more. Um, I couldn't drive. Lots of my job I couldn't do to begin with. Most embarrassing thing was is that I couldn't cut up my food. So I think I was living with uh, these guys, and I had to cut my food. And when I was at work, and the staff, were had to get people to cut my food. So it was quite embarrassing. But after a couple of months, you know, I adjusted, and most of what I could do, I could, I could do pretty well. You know, after a couple of months, and. I mean, I was always aware of a few things that I couldn't do. So I couldn't drive, I couldn't go swimming, couldn't go to the gym. But I always had, like, a but when. But when I get this off, I can do that. But when I get this off, I can do that. A lot of us can live like this in our spiritual lives. In our discipleship, we have a but when. But when I get over that, but when that's no longer an issue, I will live this life. However, our but whens, have been going on for a while, and our but-whens don't seem to have an end date. The other thing, and one can lead to the other, is that we we give in, or we give ourselves over to things. And lust would be an example of this. Um, And Now, lust is an issue with the heart, and we always have to go, you know, when we're struggling with lust, we have to go to our heart and see what is actually going on in our hearts. But then... That is something, you know, if you give up going there, give up that struggle in a way, you give yourself over to it. Whether knowingly or unknowingly. you give yourself over to it. And that's when things like pornography, addiction can happen and when inappropriate sexual behaviour with someone who's not your spouse can happen. And we know how destructive this can be. And sin is destructive. You know, whether it's lust, anger, envy, selfish ambition, whatever it is, sin in its various forms causes destruction. And it's not just yourself it harms. Sin doesn't just harm yourself. It's the difference between like a bomb and a bullet. So if I was to take a gun, to shoot myself, I would harm myself. But if I was to take a bomb and explode that, I would take out everyone else around me. And that's what happens with sin. It doesn't just affect you and the regulation of your God. It goes off and it affects those who are around you and who are closer to you. But sin's destruction can also go unnoticed. So a few years ago, I bought a a 13-year-old Nissan Almera. Now, now I know Christopher's got one. But uh, it it wasn't my dream car by any stretch of imagination, but it was cheap, and it had just passed its MOT, which is what I was looking for at the time. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to get this car, and I'm going to run it through to the ground. So I was thinking that three or four years, I will get out of it. However, you know, after a year, it was due its MOT. I took it to the garage and awaited the phone call. So you wait the phone call, see what the damage is. And he calls me up and says, you know, Mr. Stanton, it's not worth it. You know, there's been, there's been corrosion to the, the, the chassis underneath and it, it's basically a write-off. It's not economically worth it. So I hadn't seen that coming, but there was hidden destruction yes. underneath. And so whether you, whether in noticeable ways or in noti- unnoticeable ways, you know, sin causes ruin, it pollutes, it corrupts. And you only have to turn on the news, you only have to work in the school, you only have to be involved in your communities to know that sin causes destruction. Mm-hmm. But it's much harder to talk about sin's destruction when it comes to the church. We don't want to talk about it. I have friends and family who want nothing to do with the church because of their experiences in the past. Mm-hmm. And I'm haunted to this day about a conversation I had when I was about 20 with a friend I did a youth group with. and. He'd been involved in church, he was quite keen, but then there was a few things which happened, and there was fighting amongst adults and leaders. Uh, leaders resigned because they thought that everyone was against them. And uh, a youth leader became an elder, Adam there, son and daughter were in the youth group. Lots of disruption. And I remember talking to him, this was a few years afterwards, and he was saying, Look, you know." I believe, you know, I, I try and get away from it, but I can't. It's just like God's coming at me and it's just like I can't, I believe. And then the question of come back to church came up and he says, I'm not going back. Just can't go back. So he's having this conviction, but won't go to come back. Dallas Woodard says, Many Christians have never been in an intimate fellowship where the corrupted condition of the human soul did not in fact prevail. They have never been in a fellowship in which they could assume that everyone would do what everyone knew to be right. And many people in the culture have, on the basis of their experiences, simply given up on the church, many of them, in the name of God and righteousness. Now, it would be a matter of fact that you'll be in this room and you have been affected by other people's sin. But also, it's a matter of fact that, you know, I'm not immune to my sin affecting other people. And we need to be mindful of how we are living our lives. We need to be mindful of how we are being formed because we are going to be formed in one way where we become closer to a disciple of Jesus or we're going to be formed in another way. There doesn't seem to be any neutral ground. Uh, pattern.org.uk is a discipleship um, stream associated with a church in London. They say this, our towns and cities are formation machines, a concrete rabbi demanding its inhabitants become like it and adopt its lifestyle. For better and for worse, but never for neutral. Our time, our energy and our resources get drawn into daily rituals, embodied practices of the towns and cities where we live. And these habits are powerful. As writer Trish Warren puts it, the crucible of our formation is in the anonymous monotony of our daily routines. Towns and cities rewire us from the core to see the world in a certain way and to desire certain things. It means the habits of our lives shape the desires of our lives, which in turn shape the direction of our lives. All this means that if we were to wake up tomorrow and just live out a normal day in the city, we will be shaped. We will be discipled. The question is simply into whose likeness? Are we being apprentices of the city or apprentices of Jesus? So it's quite clear that to be formed as a disciple of Jesus takes conscious effort in that direction. Yeah. And we must be vigilant in these matters, or that gap I was talking about, the gap between the lives we could live and the lives we are actually living, will just widen. And the portal was simply settling. Or giving in will intensify. And this is a battle. Yeah? This is a battle which everyone in this room is facing. Yeah? But you have brothers and sisters in here who can fight with you. As you fight with them, they will fight with you. You don't have to do this alone. And we all need friends like the paralyzed man who will take us to Jesus. Because yes. when we're with Jesus, we find mercy, we find grace, we find help in our time of need. I was really pleased that Helen shared, you know, she's been a powerless, but actually in Jesus, she can have that power. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on. And these are hard words from Jesus, aren't they? It's a difficult thing to hear. And perhaps you're wondering, you know, Is there anything different about my Christian life? Is there anything compelling about my life where others who don't believe look on and think, oh, I want a bit of that? Or maybe maybe you feel like you've blown it. You've blown it and, and there's no way back. But the good news is that Jesus can make you salty again. He is the one who can make you salty again. He can heal you from your past. He can fully restore you, a bit like what I was saying about Graham. But you can't be a lone ranger in this. You need friends in the battle, who, when you fall, when you stumble, when you feel like you can't go to Jesus yourself, will take you there. Okay. You need your friends. So how? Going to move on to how we do these discipleship threes. So, can I have the next slide? So how do we do discipleship threes? So, the first one is time. Take so time. We need some time together to do this. H is for honesty. This is where your openness and confession are for reading, reading the same scriptures together. E for encouraging one another to live as disciples. And E is for eating, so that is basically sharing real life together. So I'm going to talk about time first of all. Now with G1C's meeting fortnightly, there is space in the diary, in the G1 diary specifically for these. Um, you don't have to meet on an evening where you have your, your group. You can meet where, wherever is convenient for the two, three or four of you. So I've been in G1C's where we've met in the morning before work or before whatever our daily activities. And I've known other groups who have met during the daytime. Uh, you can meet at the weekends. Whatever is convenient for you, you find the time for that. Um, but what do we do with our time? How, how do we get started in the first place? Well, a good place is to start telling your own story. Now in my G1C, like I said with Graham, you know, we get someone else, someone different to tell their story each week. But I say to them, you know, you've only got 10 minutes. And everyone says, I cannot possibly do it in 10 minutes. Now there's a good skill in being able to do it in 10 minutes, especially evangelistically. However, a three is a time to take your time in telling your story. This is a chance to look back over the significant moments of your life. The good ones, the painful ones, the disappointing ones, the momentous ones, the confusing ones. That have led you to where you are now. It's a space to better understand yourself and how God has been at work in your life and to build honest, life-shaping relationships. And the three is a perfect time to take that time to tell your story. Now, the other thing... Um, You obviously tell your story and you're speaking, but the other side of it is the listening side of it. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is a remarkable man. Um, I don't have time to go through his his backstory, but he wrote two significant books on discipleship. One was The Cost of Discipleship, and the other one is Life Together. And they're really good. You can see it's um, quite a small book, quite a thin book, but it actually packs a powerful punch, and it gets right to the point. Really good book. It's about 80 80 years old now, but... um, and some of, some of the phrasing is quite strong. So I've got a quote which is coming up here, and I almost didn't put it in because I felt some of the words were quite strong, but actually it's made its way in. And here we go. So, and it's talking about listening. It goes like, that, there is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It is an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person told you it was strong. Um, It gets better. (laughs) This is no fulfillment of our obligation, and it is certain that here, too, our attitude toward our brother only reflects our relationship to God. It is little wonder that we are no longer capable of the greatest service of listening that God has committed to us, that of hearing our brother's confession, if we refuse to give ear to our brother on lesser subjects. Secular education today is aware that often a person can be helped merely by having someone who will listen to him seriously. And upon this insight, it has constructed its own soul therapy, which has attracted great numbers of people, including Christians. But Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him, who himself, the great listener, and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God, that we may speak The word of God. So don't underestimate the power of listening. But when you listen and you listen well and you understand, you can better apply the word of God to your friend, to your brother. Better instruct, better advise when you have taken the time to listen. And by taking this time and speaking and listening, that's where we build trust. That's where we build that friendship. And that's where you build the type of trust and friendship where you can let your guard down, where you can drop that pretense. John Ortberg uh, has written a book, which is, I um, can't remember what the book's called. Everybody's normal. Everybody, it's up there. Everybody's normal until you get to know them. And he calls this like taking your mask off. And he says, we try to create first century community on a 21st century timetable, and it doesn't work. Maybe the biggest single barrier to deep mask off connectedness for most of us is simply the, play, the pace of our lives. The requirement for true intimacy is unhurried time. If you think you can fit deep community into the cracks of an overloaded schedule, think again. Wise people do not try to microwave friendship, parenting or marriage. You can't do community in a hurry. You can't listen in a hurry. You can't mourn or rejoice in a hurry. Many people lack great friends for the simple reason that they have never made pursuing community a priority. Taking our mask off, though, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable thing to drop the star, drop the pretense. And it's our natural instinct. When we've got things in our lives which we're maybe not... Proud of, or it's our natural instinct to try and cover it up, and we've inherited that. We've inherited that from, from our first parents, Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, they tried to hide from God. It says they tried to hide from the presence of God, and then God calls out to them. God knows where they are, but God calls out to them and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam replies, I hid from you because I was ashamed. And that's exactly what we can do, and we may know we can't hide from God, but we do try and hide from one another. We do try and hide from the gospel community. Got Bonhoeffer again, he weighs in, and he says, sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from the community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. And I'd suggest that you can actually be around people, but still be hiding. Yes. Uh, you can have lots of friends, you can, have, you can be married, you can be irregular at gatherings, yet no one knows, no one knows the secret angst, no one knows that private conversation going around, no one knows that shame. And you need to take the step of being open, and you need to take the step of confessing. 1 John 1 says, this is the message we have heard from him, In us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So they're strong words, and I think that's where Bonhoeffer gets it from. But my experience is that when I have been vulnerable, when I have confessed, when I have let people know about my struggle, I have been met in the context of a gospel community with friendship, with faith the fellowship, and with people who take me to my only hope, Jesus. And it's actually been my confession, the the thing which I think will make people think less of me, which makes me think they may reject me in some way, it's actually been at that point where I have found deeper friendship, where I've found a, a, a deeper discipleship, and The effect of this is also, when I've done this in the context of the three, I've had, you know, yeah, me also. Yeah, me also. Or I've had, you know, well, not that, but actually, this is the real thing I'm struggling with. Yeah. Yeah, so openness breeds openness. Honesty breeds honesty. Last one from Bonhoeffer, he says, confession in the presence of friends is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down, it is a dreadful blow to the pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death. In the deep mental, physical pain of confession before a brother, which means before God, we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The sinful man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. Now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. You know, you may be one confession away from freedom. Not that your struggle is over, but that the secret is over. Yes. And sometimes it's, you know, the secret is the first thing, the first chain which needs to be broken before you can move on in your healing. we we'll move on to reading. So Colossians tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And a daily Bible reading will help you do that. It's a great, consistent habit. And it's a bit like eating healthily every day. Yeah? So eating healthily every day, it's not always memorable. You know. It's not always exciting, but it can be both of those. But down the line, you recognise the difference. You recognise the changes down the line. It's giving you the nutrients you need to grow. And when you do it with others, you're more likely to stick with it and do it every day. Um, just having others to do it. Now, this is something with um, Ben Gatley and Ben Jones, that was my last three, which we did really well. Now, we use the, the Bible app. Um, and Within the Bible app, you can form groups, and they send the scripture through to you daily, and then there's a little um, thing in there where you can text one another insights or something which has provoked you in that scripture and you, you can send that through and that's something we did really really well um so i mean we, we did it for a good period of time so I, i'd go first i'd get up early before anyone else in my household i'd do it at my table i'd read scripture and whatever i felt god speaking to me i'd put on the thing then i'd go off to work and by the time i got to work i think ben ben Gatley had dealt with his children and now he was on the on the train to work and that's where he did it on the train to work and that would come through to me and then by lunchtime I think Ben Jones had done his and design, he just, got up just just <laughs> got up and did it and and then then we could read everyone's responses come lunchtime sometimes we'd have a little back and forth um, sometimes we just leave it there depending on what it was but that could be something that we would then follow up when we met in person and that I still remember now was a good fruitful time for me in the word moving on to encouragement Hebrews tells us to consider how we can spur another, one another on towards love and good deeds let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching so there's loads of ways you can encourage each other listening as I've already mentioned and then directing correction suggesting reading the bible together praying and prophesying over one another, celebrating, celebrating what Jesus has done in your life, celebrating your progress in him, and then mourning together as well. Life throws things at you, mourning together eating together the last one and it's simply inviting each other into one another's life so you might want to cook a little bit extra and invite people over for the food or if you're out socializing just invite others around But including each other in everyday life and having this three as part of your everyday life moving on to some practicalities before um, we finish Um, in terms of forming a three this is a good process to follow so connecting on Sunday and we're we've all connected on Sunday uh, then finding the G1C so really important to be in part of the G1C and then simply finding friends so finding friends in your G1C and in the wider community as well and then from that from that place of friendship that is a place to go and invite people you know say to people you know what are you doing for free how about it okay now um, I'm going to finish with a quote, um, maybe if the band could come up. Um, it's been my hope and my prayer to, first of all, inform you, but also inspire you to take action and think about these frees and to form these frees. From experience, I've been doing these since um, since before I came to God First, actually. I've been doing these for a, a while, and I need that place. deep discipleship I need that place where I have others speaking directly into the issues of my Mm. life I need others who will take me to Jesus because he is my only hope he is where I find forgiveness he is where I will find growth he is where I find restoration and healing he's the one we sung about him today he's wonderful he's wonderful and I need others to take me to him Paul David Tripp in his book The Missional Community and I'll finish with this. He says I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my role as a Jesus follower to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and say things to me that I couldn't Wouldn't say to myself. I have realised now realised how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.